Amen. Praise God. Well, we have been going through this last paragraph in chapter number two, which I think, again, if you really understand it, uh, it really corrects so much of the errors that happen to begin in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and really sets us in a, in a right direction again as a church. Because we realize as we look at the overall arc of uh, cha- chapter number two, we see the formation again of the church, the start of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the spirit come. We see Peter's preaching. We see that 3,000 people came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we ask the, ask the question all the way through, through, through it. Then what comes? What comes next? How do they function? How do they operate? You know, and we've been looking at that. And we saw, again, there was basically four activities or four functionalities that this early church gave themselves over. And certainly, again, as these people came to a saving knowledge of Christ, they loved Christ. They desired to know more about Jesus Christ. And they knew this. They knew from that one sermon of Peter. They didn't know everything. So there was more to learn. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, or what we would call the apostles' doctrine. They wanted to know about Jesus Christ. But they also loved to be with one another, with other believers in Jesus. They loved to talk about Jesus. They loved to talk about their salvation, their future hope that happens to be in him. And they loved to come to the Lord's table. You know, they loved to be reminded of what the foundation of their salvation in Jesus Christ was his perfect life and his substitutionary atonement, and they loved that. And they gave themselves over the prayer, a prayer. And the reason why they gave themselves over the prayer is they realized how weak and needy they happened to be, but how awesome and all-powerful this God again happened to be. You know, and that led to a change of character, a change of action, a change of being in them. And we started to look at that last time together. We saw that an awe came over all these people. I mean, about how holy, how great, how awesome this God happens to be. And a lot of times, even when we meet together, there's not that sense of awe. There's not that sense of glory of the greatness of this great God. But when you look at the early church, when you look at a meeting together, they had that sense of awe. They also had a sense that God was working in their midst. I mean, it was easy to see. They had apostles with them, and the apostles were doing all of these signs and wonders and light that they did not have the finished work of the, of the scriptures. But they saw God working in their midst. They saw God changing hearts, bringing people to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, opening eyes and opening up dead hearts and making them alive. And they saw that work. You know, and the more that we engage in these spiritual disciplines, the more that we see God working in our lives. Now, when you look at this, this last paragraph, and I know it's only a short, short paragraph, but it's absolutely necessary for us to look at. It's incredible to look at the testimony. It's incredible to look at the change. And it's incredible to look even at the public testimony, how others were viewing the church of Jesus Christ. Because I must say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is not how people view, view the church today. Many people, again, when they look at the church, you know, they look at it many times as something that's lifeless, something that's boring, you know, full of opinionated people, unloving people, uncaring, judgmental. And they think it's the most judgmental entity that exists on planet Earth, and, and our lives, everyone's lives would be better if it was just banished away. You know, and many people look at the church, and if you want to feel bad about yourself, if you want to be pulled down, just come out to church. You know, that's all you need. You know, the church is full of restrictions. The church is full of I can't do's. You know, and let me just say this. There's scads and scads and scads of young people who walk away from the faith every single year because this is what they think. They think beyond a shadow of a doubt, when you look at the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's just about restrictions on your life. 
You know, it's just about confinement. There is a lack of freedom, so they can hardly wait to get out that they might experience freedom. And let me just say this to the young people that happen to be here this morning. If that's the way that you view the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we have given you that view, I absolutely apologize. Because it can be, it's anything but the truth. You know, when you look at this church, when you look at this early church, it's absolutely dynamic. You know, they're living a life of freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're so excited. They're so excited to learn about Jesus Christ, follow him, live a life of holiness. And they're even willing to give up, again, their material goods, you know, for the welfare of those that happen to be around them as a sign, as a token, as a gesture, again, of the great sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made in their lives. You know, and as you look at the character that happens to be in this early church, my question is, who wouldn't want to belong to it? You know, it's incredible. It's dynamic. It's living. They looked at the Lord Jesus Christ, and in him, again, they had security. They had meaning. They had substance. They had satisfaction. They had joy unspeakable. You know, and, 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 and they also wanted others to be touched by his grace. And the great question that we should ask ourselves, and we should always do introspection, you know, not only personal introspection, but also intro, introspection in the church. And the question we should ask ourselves, is this what we see at Emmanuel Baptist Church? Is this kind of the kind of life? Is this the kind of vibrancy? Is this the kind of love for Jesus Christ that translates for the love of other people? And, uh, and as we look at those questions, I think, again, we should also get a little personal. Because it's easy to look at other people, isn't it? It's easy to judge other people. It's easy even to be critical of other people. But how about us? You know, what's our, li- our life like in Jesus Christ? And I realize we can get real legalistic. We can say, well, I've got to do this. I've got I've I've to learn the apostles' doctrine. I've got to fellowship with somebody today. You know, you know, I have to be present this Sunday because we're breaking bread. You know, I have to do my prayers every day. And we can go legalistically through these things. And let me just say that these things do not guarantee a great love of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I can guarantee you, without these disciplines, you will not grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can do them legalistically. But they are not an end. They're a means to an end. And the end is seeing Christ, isn't it? You know, it's, it's just like what is written over 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 18. It says this. This is what we're doing when we learn the apostles' doctrine. This is what we do when we worship him. It says, and we all, with unveiled face. This is what we're doing. Beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is a spirit. So the spirit, again, who has written the word of God, interacts with the word of God as we see this. And we behold Christ. We can see Christ through the scriptures. And the more that we see him, the efficacy of his life, what he has done, the immensity of his personhood, and realize this, we want to become like him. We want to follow him. In other words, again, when you look at these spiritual disciplines, they're not have-tos, but they're want-tos. We want to learn and follow this great Christ. We want others to see who he is. So as we end off this chapter, you know, that we've been looking for for a number of weeks, you know, that I, I just want us to see a couple other things that I hope, again, will be a great blessing and really show us the impact that this church has. You know, and one of the things that they did, you know, as they interacted with Christ, as they interacted with the Apostles' Doctrine and these other disciplines that happened to be there, it gave them a concern, a care, you know, a love for others that they would not naturally have. And you can see that in verses 44 and following of our passage. Look at what it says right here. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts. So let me just stop right there. Let me ask you a question. And this is a loaded question. Do you have anybody in your life that you can't stand? Right? Right? And, and here it is. I'm not going to ask anybody to put up their hand. That's a loaded question, isn't it? You know, if you had the choice this morning to be in their presence, you would say, no, I'm not going to do it. You know, and you can almost feel, you know, when you picture that person in your mind, your blood start to boil. You know, and, and we would ask the question, what is the problem? And I think that's a great question to always ask. You know, what's the problem? We would say it was, it's them. It's a horizontal problem. You do not understand or you cannot fathom what they have said to me, what they have done to me. And the problem is them. You know, and I think, again, a lot of times we have to look at that question so much more deeper, don't we? Because when we look at that question, we have to ask ourselves, who, who is the Lord? You, you, you know, what is he commanded in our life? You know, how has he shown us the extent of his love? Of his love? And, and Jesus not only loves his enemies, but has commanded us to love our enemies. Jesus not only forgives us of our sins, but he's commanded to, to, to forgive those who have sinned against us. He calls us to a radical different life. So when we talk about this, when we talk about, again, hating, when we talk about animosity, when we talk about anger, when we talk about frustration, when we talk about certain people in our lives that we absolutely want nothing to do with, it is not a horizontal problem. It's first, again, a vertical problem. It's a heart issue between us and God. And we all know the first command that happens to be, again, uh, with, with a promise. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest command? You know, he's responded to that in uh, Matthew chapter 22. And this is what he said. And he said to them, you, sh- you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. Right? Heart, soul, and mind. You know, all of it, not part of it. You know, and how can we ever say that we are loving God with all that happens to be in us, but we're hating somebody else? You know, whom God has said, beyond a shadow of a doubt, love your enemies. How, how, how can we ever say that? I, I can remember talking to a gentleman once, and he was telling me about some of the relations that happened to be in his life, and he was having a hard time with them, and he hated them and wanted nothing to do with them. And I asked him how this relationship with God is. And he said this, and it was really stunning. He said, my relationship with God has never been closer. The problem is not me and God. The problem is me and other people. And let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, that is a lie from the pit of hell. It really is. Because Jesus even goes on in that passage in Matthew chapter 22, and he says the second is like to it. So the second is like the first. Both of them are joined together. Otherwise, when I have this vertical love, right, it's almost like obeying all of the, all of the first table of the Ten Commandments. It spills over to the second table. And this is what it says. And it says, and, it, uh, and, and, and the second is like, do it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, and so we see that dynamic, this vertical relationship with God creates this. Now, why do I say all of that? I say all of that because this is what you see in this church. You know, people who should have nothing in common and want nothing to do with one another are brought close. I mean, you have Hellenistic Jews. You have Palestinian Jews who hated one another. And here they are, bonded together in Jesus Christ, even willing to sacrifice for one another. I mean, this is something that's not natural. This is something that's supernatural. But here, here it is. They're learning the apostles' doctrine. They're fellowshipping. They're breaking the bread. They're reminded the cost of their sin over and over. They're praying for heart change and heart change in those who happen to be again around them. 
And what's it producing? It's producing a horizontal change in their relationships. You know, and you see that in verses 44 and 45 again. And all who believed, right, were together and had all things in common. And were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It's an incredible verse, isn't it? And now, we pointed this out a number, again, of weeks ago, so I'm going to point it out again. A lot of people will turn to this passage as an uh, argument for modern-day communal living, our communism, you know, that we ought to have everything, in, uh, everything the same. We ought to have the same standard of living. It uh, doesn't matter what we do. Let's just throw everything in a big pot and let's say kumbaya. And that's not what this passage is talking about. Because it says that they are selling all of their possessions and giving them to, and here's the prerequisite, as any had need. You know, and you see that in a passage of scripture that happened to be right there. So think of it. Here's somebody that's struggling in the congregation. Here's somebody, here's a Palestinian Jew that's struggling. Here's a Hellenistic Jew who has some property or has some beings. And he looks over this big person and he doesn't ask this question. Is he worthy of my sacrifice? No, he says this. Is he needy? And if he's needy, I am willing to give up. And if you really want, and listen, you know my preaching. I'm not a health, wealth, and prosperity preacher up here. I'm not preaching about money all the time. But one of the aspects to really show us our love for one another is where we invest our money. You know, and as you look at your pocketbook, as you look again at where you invest your money, it's so easy to say, oh, man, i got a raise. I I can buy this. I can have this. How much, again, of it is truly invested in others? How, many, how much of it is really invested in the kingdom of Christ for his glory? You know, it's a great way to see, gauge our love for Christ and our love for other people. Because look at, again, verse number 44. It says this. It says, and all those who believed were together. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? We realize, and you've heard me say this before, that doctrine divides. You know, what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ places a furrow. You know, people are on one side, people are on the other side. And we realize that, what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe, we defend. You know, but I think when you look at the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the things that we're divided over many times are just petty things. They're personal things. You know, when you look at all the anger and frustration that happens to be, again, among the people of God, this is what the world that happens to be around us many times associates with the church of Jesus Christ. You know, this is what they many times view as Christianity, but not this church. You know, here they are, they're coming together, they're loving one another, they're willing to sacrifice, and think of what love is. I love this definition. Uh, this definition is not new, new of me. This definition was given many years ago by Paul David Tripp, but it's basically this. Love is willing sacrifice, right? It's willing sacrifice. Love is willing sacrifice that gives up what I can have for the needs of others and never needs to be reciprocated. In other words, never needs to be paid back. And that's the love that you see here. It didn't need to be paid back. It gladly met the needs of others. It didn't complain, but it wholeheartedly loved those who have to be around it. Now, how is that love produced? And it's produced by recognizing the great sacrifice and the great love which we have been loved in Jesus Christ and growing to see that. And that's actually what it did. I mean, there was a delight in this. 
And you can see that in verse number 46. It says, and day by day, attending the temple together. Again, they're together, 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 together. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in homes. They receive food with gladness and generous hearts. Can you imagine wanting to get you know, uh, home out of that hot field? And you wanted to get home out of that hot field so you could go to church. You could be with other believers. You know, and they used to meet day by day in two places. And one happened to be, again, in the temple. And the reason why they met in the temple is because there was no places in Jerusalem that could hold 3,000 plus people. They just didn't have places that big enough. You know, and so when they came together, persecution has not begun. At least the opposition is not that strong inside Judaism at this time. And they used to come to the temple to meet together. No doubt, to be instructed in the things of the Lord, instructed by the apostles' doctrine. And then they used to go into private homes. And they used to go to private homes to have this intimate uh, meal called the table of the Lord. And I, I, I don't know how many people were present, probably 50, 60, maybe even 100 in some of these larger homes that met together. And they would go over and over and over and over the glories of what Jesus has done to us. And this is where our hope is. It's found in the Lord Jesus and they delighted to do this. This wasn't boring. You know, this wasn't, oh, man, we're going to do the table of the Lord today, and they're going to have to stay an extra 10 minutes. You know, it wasn't that sort of Christianity. You know, they delighted to do this. You can even see this at the end of that uh, verse, in verse 46, because it says they're glad and generous hearts, right? Glad means what? It means, again, a joy that is internal, that can be seen externally. And how can it be seen externally? By this, generous you know, they're giving generously out of their hearts. They're participating in worship out of their hearts because they want to now. Think about it. Is that what you see in modern-day Christianity? Is that, is that what you see in your life? You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones comments about the reputation of the church today, and he writes this, the average person's notion is that Christianity, Christians live narrow, cramped, miserable little lives, mainly characterized by what they do not do, Right? that they are people who just know enough about God to make them miserable. People who seem to find no enjoyment whatsoever in what they do. Christianity has put some kind of break upon their lives. It stands between them and a full, free, joyous, and happy life. You know what's amazing about this, this paragraph? Look at this paragraph, and, you'll find, and you won't find something. And you know what it is? You don't find any negatives. You don't find any, this is what the church wasn't doing. This is the strictures that happen to be in their life. And why? Because they were living a bountiful, free life in Jesus Christ. And they wanted to live a holy life. They wanted to learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. They wanted to break bread. They wanted to be with other believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it spilled out. You know, uh, Jones talks about, again, this type of, of uh, joy that these believers have, uh, have, and he goes on and, and comments this way. He says, but Christian joy, true, authentic Christian joy is deep joy, a pure and holy joy. The Bible calls it the joy in the Holy Ghost. This is a joy that includes the element, again, of fear. There's an awe of who God is and what he has done. The world, of course, says you cannot mix fear and joy, but you can and that is the only true joy. There is a control. Whatever we fear most in life controls our life. There is a control. There is a depth. There is a holiness. It is a joy that comes from God. It is a part, a foretaste of the very glory of God and of heaven 
that he, that he shares with those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, it is amazing, isn't it? And the big question we have to ask ourselves as we look at our lives, is that our salvation? Is that our experience in following this great God who, who came in human flesh and sacrificed for us? And another question to ask, if we all live this way, in, right here in Acts chapter 2, if we all devoted ourselves to see Christ, what kind of impact would we have on those that happen to be again around us? What, what kind of impact would we have in our community? Because we're told what kind of impact this church had in the communities that they were living in. And you can see that again in the final verse here, in verse number 47. Look at what it says. Praising God and having favor with all people. And it says this, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Incredible, isn't it? You know, let me ask you the question. Or let me make a a statement because I I think this is true of all of us. All of us love to be around people who are full of the joy of the Lord. Isn't it true? Have have you ever been around somebody like that? They're They're just so, you know, it seems they're just so full of Christ. You know, it just oozes out of them naturally. It's not that they're putting on a show. It's not, again, that they're putting on an act. But they love Christ so much that they want to talk about him. They want to share the, the uh, joy of the Lord. And every time you're around them, you're convicted of the lack of joy that happened to be in your house, in, in, in your life. But you're also, here it is, rejoicing. You always go away encouraged with the God of your salvation, with the salvation that you have, with this eternal hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And you always go away encouraged. Have you ever known anybody like that? Have you ever, ever known somebody that happens to be in your Christianity? When you get an opportunity to be with them, you look forward to it because when you go away, you're going to be encouraged to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Ever have anybody like that in your life? Now, here's the thing. That's not supposed to be the oddity. That's not supposed to say, well, I, I knew someone like that about 10 years ago. Well, I, you know, there's, there's one or two people in my church that are like that. It's not supposed to be the oddity. It's supposed to be, again, the, the mark of all those who are in Christ. And you can see that again in the church. It was a mark of all those who happened to be again in the Lord Jesus Christ. They loved Christ. And think about it, because, because we, each of us have to at, ask that question. Is my life marked by that? Is my life marked by seeing Christ, beholding Christ, loving Christ, cherishing Christ, so much so that I respond differently to everything that happens to me again in my life? It's not talking about that I have great circumstances. not talking about, again, my relationships are easy. not talking about, again, my fi- uh, finances and my bank account is overflowing. It's not talking about any of that. It's talking about that I have this joy in Christ that's so deep. So glorious because of what he has done for a sinner like me. I mean, ask yourself the question. When other people come into your life, remember, you're over, your life is an overflow. Your life is an overflow of what you learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. What, how do people respond? Are you an encouragement or do you just weigh people down all the time? Because when you look at this church, the amazing thing about this church is that this describes this early church. You know, when you look at it, again, this is not put on. You know, oh, here we are. We're, we're in the presence of a whole bunch of unbelievers. Let's, let's do up our ties and let's be super uh, sanctified. There's nothing like that that happens to be right here. This is a supernatural response that seems so natural because of the joy of the Lord that has flooded their hearts because of these truths of who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he will do when he comes back. 
It has flooded their hearts, so much so that there is a presence of joy that cannot be contained in their life. You know, and, and again, this is not to say that they didn't suffer. In fact, you'll see them suffer later on, and they'll still have the same joyous spirit. But look at what it says, because I want us to see there's a progression here in this verse. It says, praising God, right? That's the first part. Here's the second part. And having favor with all people. And then here's the third part. Here's, here's the fruit of that life. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Do you see the three parts? Do you see that progression here? Here they, oh, God's so great. Look at the grace he's given me in my life. Look at who Christ is. And then all of a sudden that leads to what? Favor. People were noticing. People notice how we live, how we function, what we truly hope in. And then we see the outcome, the fruit. You know, the Lord was adding to the inner midst, such as those who were being saved. I mean, it's incredible. But it all starts with this, praising God. Now, here's the question. Why are they praising God? Why are they praising God? And they're praising God, why? Because they're learning what? They're learning, it begins with an A. Anyone know? Please help me out, please help me out. It's the apostles' doctrine, isn't it? It's the apostles' teaching. They're learning about Jesus Christ. They're talking about these truths. They're bringing these truths before Christ. They can see them visually in the elements, again, right right here. You know, and they're recognizing the greatness of their salvation. What does it cause? It causes a praising God. Now, think about it. If all of a sudden there is a great creator, God, that happens to be in heaven, which there is, just think about it, and think about, you know, we are called to live for him, and none of us live for him, but he decides to don human flesh, to come amongst us, not to live a crown prince's life, not to live a general's life, but to live a commoner's life, and he lives that life perfectly without sin. And he realizes that there is a wage for sin, there's a penalty of sin, and that is the eternal wrath of God. But because, again, of the worth of his soul, he decides to take that wrath upon us. Let me ask you this question. Would that be something we're celebrating? Would that be something we're celebrating? Would that be something we're saying, God, I praise you. This is all of you. This is nothing of me. All I can do is praise you. You know, it's not just talking about what's going on in church. It's talking about, again, all of their life, whether they happen to be in the field, whether they happen to be with the family, whether they happen to be, again, at church. All of their life was one long praise. Look at what my God, look at who my God is. Look at what he has done. Look at my Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, this is so different than the humdrum picture that we often depict in the church and among Christians. The praise of God and being overwhelmed with God is not because of their circumstances. Again, I will say this again. When you look further, when you look in the next chapter and the next chapter after that, persecution arises. You know, and when you look at the persecution, when you look at the apostles and they are beaten for their faith in Jesus Christ, what do they do? They come out of prison praising this great God that they were found worthy to suffer not because of their own righteousness, but suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their joy doesn't dissipate. It's not circumstantial joy. The world would understand if we were here and we were all good people and God had blessed us with good families, God had blessed us with good relationships, God has blessed us with a whole bunch of money, they would understand our faith in Christ. You know, they do not understand many times when they see this joy that's so deep, that's so wondrous, that's so glorious, that's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me ask you this question. Do you really think the cloud over my head, always complaining, bitter about life, bitter about your relationships, bitter because you don't have enough money, bitter because of the government decisions, 
Do you think beyond a shadow of a doubt that that is the faith that turned the world upside down? Do you think it was that faith? You know, and that, that's the amazing thing, right? Because they're praising, they're overwhelming a sense of who God is and what he has done led to this, and having favor, and having favor with all people, all people, all people. Doesn't matter the rank, doesn't matter where they came from, we're challenged by this witness. And it wasn't a negative uh, um, a challenge. Whatever they saw in these early believers drew them to Jesus Christ. They couldn't understand it. This is like nothing we've seen before. And because it's like nothing we've seen before, we have to learn more about it. We have to learn more about this Christ, more about the salvation, more about this meaning of the cross, more about this joy, the joy in Jesus Christ. I think a lot of times because our hope really when, it can, when, when we get out of church is more like the world that happens to be again around us that many times we look at our lives and we ask ourselves the question, why is my life not impacting more people? And let me tell you, if you live like the world that happens to be around you, and I'm not talking about sin, I'm just talking about desires that happen to be in your heart, a problem-free life, money, whatever it happens to be, the pleasures of this life, let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, we wonder, why is my life not having an impact? You know, and truly, where is our great joy? Where is our great hope? Because this transcends, and you might say, Pastor, you don't understand my circumstances. And I get it. I might not understand your circumstances and how horrendous they are. But let me give you an example of this. You know, in real life. You know, here's Paul, and here's Silas. And they're given, boy, there are some people really cheering for me this morning outside of these doors. This is a great, eh? Okay. The torture chamber of junior church. That's what it is. <laughs> But let me, let me give you an example. Here's Paul and Silas. And here's these early missionaries that are going into all the world, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ, planting churches all over the known world. And they come to this city called Philippi. And they decide, nobody knows of Jesus Christ in the city. And they decide again to start preaching. And there is a young girl with the spirit of divination that follows them around. And Paul finally turns away. Uh, around and exercises the demon out of this little girl. And the owners of this little slave girl are so adamant and so angry at Paul that they take Paul and they throw him, Paul and Silas, into jail. Now think about it. They're in the jail. Here they are. It's cold. It's dark. It's dank. They put their, um, their feet and their hands in stocks. And if you've ever had your feet and hands in stocks, which I would say none of us have, it is not pleasant. You know, and they're left there. Now think of it, because the church would have been, or the uh, um, jail would have been full of convicts and criminals. And let me, and let me uh, ask you this question. Would there be a different re- response from the Christian to the convicts that happen to begin over there? And I think as we think of that question, I think if we were honest with that question, you know, if this was a real-life situation where we did not know the answer to it, we would say the, the response would be the same. You know, uh, we would feel sorry for ourselves. We would complain. We would be bitter. We would be anxious. We would be fearful. We would be, again, all of those emotions. You know, and we would have the same response as everyone else that happened to be, again, in that prison. Nobody wants to be in the prison. But what happens? Well, in Acts chapter 16, verse number 25, it says, this is about midnight, right? Midnight's a good hour, isn't it? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And listen to what it says. 
And the prisoners were listening to them. I, I love that little comment at the end. You know, what are you doing? What are you doing? We've never seen this before. This is my tenth time in prison. And I've never seen this before. You know, you know, think of it. Here they are praying to God. And what do you think they were praying? What do you think they were praying? Oh, God, we pray that you might reach the jailer. God, we pray that you might reach these prisoners with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We realize that you can do this and we cannot do this. God, we pray that through this trial, through, again, this suffering that we're going through, that you might be glorified and your, and your servants might serve in such a way that they might see Jesus Christ. Now let's sing a hymn. All praise and glory to our God, the King, right? Behold our God. Seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. I never saw anything like that before. There is a question. What kind of impact do you think that would have? Because I know. Because guess why? The text tells us. You know, they never saw anything that happened to be again like that. All of a sudden, there's this earthquake you know, supernatural earthquake, all of a sudden the shackles, you know, the stocks all of a sudden come off their, their, their hands and their feet. The prison doors all of a sudden open up. And a jailer, again, who probably heard much of this that happened to be going, going, going on, but fell asleep, you know, comes running in. And he's ready to kill himself. Why? Because everybody would be gone. I mean, who wouldn't go? If you're a hardened Christian, who wouldn't go? People who have this tremendous and glorious and grand God that happens to be above. Isn't it amazing? Paul says, no, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. We are all here. Paul and Silas and also all the prisoners. And think of this. Think of this. He's heard this. He's heard this. He's heard this. He doesn't ask, why are you all here? But he knows. And he says this, you brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Amazing, isn't it? Now, I know the Holy Spirit has to open up the heart. But God has chosen to use people who have a profound love for Jesus Christ to be his instruments to make known the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ And that's the picture you get of this early church, don't you? Because right at the end of the verse, it says this, and the Lord, right? It's the Lord's doing, it's the Lord's doing, it's the Lord's doing, but he's using individuals. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And that witness didn't dissipate. You'll see this in this book. That witness did not dissipate. That joy did not dissipate. That flaming fire of who Jesus Christ did not dissipate with the rise of persecution. In fact, again, it showed the glorious reality of light and darkness so much more clearer as I live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that joy was based upon something. It was based upon the Apostles' Doctrine, which is based upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and what God has done for unworthy, ill-deserving sinners such as us. And what's the challenge? The challenge is right here. Seek the disciplines. 
right? Seek the disciplines, not as an end in themselves. Well, you know, I'm going to read all these books. I'm going to do. Seek the disciplines. Learn the apostles' doctrine. Fellowship with other believers. Bring up the subject of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Talk about Him, you know, with other believers. Come and behold the wonder. Here, here it is in pictorial form of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What our Christ has done for us, and pray. Pray that God might change your heart. Pray that God might change the church's heart. So much so that we might be this witness of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will cause you to be the testimony and witness that you never thought you would be in this world. And it will seem so natural. But you know in the end, it's supernatural. It is what God does in such unworthy hearts as you and I. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, what a convicting passage of Scripture. When we look at the early church, when we look, Lord, at their love for Jesus Christ, when we look at their functionality, when we look even at our own lives, Lord, many times and how we fail, how many times, Lord, we even struggle to do the right things at the right time. Lord, how many times, God, we take our eyes off you. Lord, we let the disciplines go. Uh, God, we no longer behold Christ through his word. Lord, and we become that, that, uh, that disciple who just seems to go through the motions. And we know that you want so much more than that of us. God, do you want us to manifest Christ, to glory in Christ, to praise Christ, to cherish Christ? God, I pray that you would be with us all, that you would help us so much to see and manifest this great Christ in whom we come to worship. We thank you so much in Christ's name. Amen. Brother.